Cardinal Cajetan was frustrated by the new direction of the committee responsible for writing the critical portions of the papal bull outlining the errors of the German monk Martin Luther. The problem was the newest addition to the committee, John Eck, the theologian from Ingolstadt, Germany. Before John Eck had arrived, the committee was making real progress on a serious and scholarly analysis of Luther's teaching. Now, due to Eck's pushing for a quick release, the document was closer to an amalgamation of anything that might be considered offensive. The document was losing much of its scholarly detail and focus. Cardinal Cajetan was right to be concerned. The mischaracterizations which would come to define the document that would ultimately become Exerge Domine would become representative of the destructive talking points both Catholics and Protestants used against one another for centuries to come. I'm Mike Yeagley. And I'm Evan Gertner, and this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to a review of the history and content of documents from the Lutheran Reformation all over a nice cold beer. So today's episode is going to focus on Exerge Domine. And, you know, this is, we'll just have one, one drink for the Exerge Domine. Because every time we use some Latin, we take a drink to make sure we stay humble. And yet, we can't do that in this episode every time we say the word. <laughs> so we'll just do it once. This covers all the times we say Exerge Domine. So Not a lot of Lutheran scholarship on Exerge Domine. It's mostly considered the papal eviction notice that Luther burned. So this is this was the document that the Catholic Church put out to Luther to put him on warning, saying, either you change or you're out. And Luther burned it. And from a Lutheran perspective, we really don't care about it much beyond that. It was burned, it was done. Well, one of the reasons we don't care about it as much is because it has no specifics to it. It's so much easier to debate and have some conversation if there's clear, all right, this is what was opposed, let's address it by scripture. And instead, we're going to talk about how John Eck, when he comes to the committee and he bulldozes his way through it and makes sure something gets published quickly, well, it becomes something that is largely just an attack piece without much substance. Now, we pulled most of the information we're going to be sharing today or at least a lot of it, from Catholic scholars. And and as I was looking through Catholic scholarship on Exerge Domine, I was really surprised and pl- pl- pleasantly surprised by the balanced approach they took. Uh, they, they, they were really honest about you know what was good with it and what was bad, mostly what was bad. And for the website, we will list some links to where you can read Exerge Domine, including a link to papalencyclicals.net, where you can see uh, the document in its fullness it's also of course at the vatican so that was then this is a vatican oh that's that's a vatican website okay very good so uh exerge nominate really let's let's give a little bit of background exerge exerge nominate didn't come from any from nowhere it didn't come out of out of thin air it started when luther started to question the scholastic theology scholastic theology that idea that a relationship to god can be understood through reason is, so, is kind of a brief, I'm sure someone could say, oh, it's a lot more than that. But just quickly. So so then uh, Luther des- goes after scholastic theology because he decided to defend his parish, uh, his personal parish from the excesses of indulgences. So he nailed the 95 theses, which were just one-sentence arguments. This is sort of going back and sort of bringing everybody up to speed on what Exerge Domine is about uh, on the church door in Wittenberg. 
uh, for a scholarly discussion. There's the printing press. So the 95 Theses spread throughout Europe. It's largely a supply and demand. People are interested, so they print more, and they spread more and more. Uh, Luther called to a discussion with the cardinal. Gageton was a right man for the job. He was learned. He was thoughtful. He was uh, had experience as a, an inquisitor. He had been the head of the Dominican order. He had the... Um, the weight of scholarship to be able to talk to Luther, which was different than John Tetzel or some of those others that had come to Luther that really couldn't handle him. Now, the the more I learn about Cardinal Cajetan, the more I like him, actually. he's He is a, a thoughtful man who really wants to get to the facts and figure out what is going on. He wants to have a conversation, but when they meet in Augsburg, his hands are tied by the Pope. He was told, get Luther to recant, reject what had been written, Well, there was no room for any thoughtful discussion, and so the discussions broke down. Luther did not recant, and he stayed in Germany. So the next thing that happened that was consequential, at least for this, is that he had Luther had a discussion with John Eck. He's a the theologian from Erfurt, Uh, from Ingolstadt. I'm sorry. But they meet in Leipzig for a debate. Eck was brilliant. He was known as a bombastic debater who would sometimes twist to the truth to win the argument. Sometimes he would win debates just because he was louder and faster in talking. Now, what during that debate, Eck and I believe what what episode was that? Was that episode twelve? We uh, should have an episode list here because we, I, we, I have no idea. <laughs> so, so but during the debate, Eck successfully cornered Luther, and he tied him to John Huss. And and the cornering is that Luther is not only someone trying to reform abuses of indulgences, but in fact, he thought the Pope and the councils could be wrong if they conflicted with Scripture. Luther spoke up for Scripture, and in doing so, he put himself in conflict with the Pope. So when Luther refused to recant his teachings, uh, he continued to write and publish documents that upset the, upset the papal leadership. Uh, in June of 1520, the Pope signed Exerge Domine, which was the papal bull that formally outlined Martin Luther's errors. Except, well, it didn't really clearly outline anything, but we'll get into that, mm-hmm. that one later. So what is a bull? So first of all, a bull is not an animal that has horns that you can ride at a cowboy bar. Okay? Okay. <laughs> the bull is named uh, from a Latin word, bulla, which is the seal that is attached to the document to demonstrate its authenticity. Okay. It started, um, uh, the bull is not just this document, but any document that was written by the Pope to be communicated throughout the Christian world would have this uh, seal attached to it, a bulla. And now bulla gets abbreviated to bull, papal bull, because it's from the Pope. And it's official. And it's official. That's really what a bull means here. It's an official communication from the Pope. And so it started as any document would that came from the Pope. But by the 1500s, the bull was the most formal document from the Pope. So it was for anything serious, any serious occasion from uh, proclaiming someone to be a saint in a canonization. Or uh, proclaiming someone a heretic um, that should be excommunicated. This bula, this seal attached to it, was important. Now, in the, in the 1500s, and even today... The, the Pope still does bulls, papal bulls, but they're primarily used, even in the 1500s, they were primarily used uh, to elevate someone to the position of cardinal. So now we've got this title, Exerge Domine, and where does this name come from? 
The, the name of all papal bulls comes from the first few Latin words of the document. So in, in this case, the bull was written against Luther and the first words were, Arise, O Lord. So it goes, Arise, O Lord, and judge your own cause. Remember your reproaches to those who are filled with foolishness all through the day. Listen to our prayers, for foxes have arisen, seeking to destroy the vineyard whose winepress you alone have trod. And one, of the, one of the great lines in here goes on to say, the wild boar from the forest seeks to destroy your vineyard. So you can sort of get an idea that the that this wasn't this wasn't going to canonize Luther. This no, is, this was not to elevate him to a cardinal, was it? No, no, no. It's no, a no. different kind of document. Uh, the preamble is written by Pope Leo X. First came uh, a group of people called uh, a papal consistory. Uh, the the consistory uh, consistory uh, gathered together. And, well, that word I just fumbled. Let's talk about what that means, Mike. So, a consistory, at least that's how I'm going to pronounce it. I, but a consistory is, is when you get a bunch, it means standing together. And it's basically saying that you have a bunch of cardinals who are going to stand together and, and with the Pope and make an official declaration. And so the consistory, you basically get a bunch of cardinals. And in this case, what they did was they got a bunch of cardinals together and with, with theologians and lawyers and different people. And they all stood together and they wrote the papal bull. They're kind of like a task force. Yeah. They're called together to stand together for specific talk, but. Do, uh, topics. They'll meet together, they'll produce a document, it'll get maybe a, a preamble and a conclusion by the Pope, and then it's done. Now, a consistory is relatively rare. They have the ones today, and, and they've always been sort of rare. But today, the I think the last extraordinary, I think they call it extraordinary consistory, uh, it was about almost 20 years ago when they, the, they released uh, Prospects for the Church for the Third Millennium. And, and so again, these primarily used for elevating cardinals, but sometimes there's something significant enough that requires a consistory and uh, and the papal bull and, and everything else that's associated with it. So what why I want to go back for a second. This whole thing with the wild boar. Yeah, it is kind of strange. We we kind of went over it maybe too quickly. Uh wild boars uh are hunted. And Pope Leo enjoyed hunting. He loved hunting. As a matter of fact, I think I think and we'll get into this in a later episode, but I think he died because he got sick while he was hunting. Interestingly, that's also in the first season of Game of Thrones, how King uh, Robert Baratheon dies. Um. <laughs> Total sidebar discussion. But just thinking about hunting boars, it, it's a dangerous activity. You got popes dying, you got kings on fictional shows dying. <laughs> so, so, but this, yeah, he loved hunting. He, and he had, he had a lot of land. He had, uh, you have to remember, if, if, if you can picture... Italy, modern Italy, the Pope owned basically from the ankle up to the top of the thigh of Italy. That was the papal land. And so it was, you have the papal boot, <laughs> you have the boot of Italy, and the wow, Pope owned a lot. all that land was, was owned by the Pope. And, and so he had plenty of land to go hunting. And, well, so, and so this imagery of the papal uh, man, this Leo X, hunting down this boar in the vineyard, and, and so he has taken upon himself this mantle of protection uh, that he is going to protect the Christian empire from this heretic Martin Luther by hunting him down. 
Now, um, interestingly, uh, Lucas Cronach in painting an altarpiece uh, for the the town church in Wittenberg has Martin Luther in a pulpit, and then there is uh, that's on the right side of the piece. Then in the center is Christ on the cross, and then on the left side is the people. And Martin Luther in the pulpit is pointing the people in his sermon uh, to Jesus, while at the same time his other hand is pointing to the scriptures to say what you see in the scriptures is what you see at Christ on the cross. While Lucas Cronach in the pulpit painted. A uh, vineyard and a bull, uh, not a bull, a boar, a wild boar running through the vineyard. So uh, they so had some fun with this. So, sort of playing with what the Pope had said and saying, yep, yep, Martin Luther is the wild boar running through your vineyard, Mr. Pope. And that's going to be a, but happy to do it because he's yeah. he's pointing to Christ. So if you're going to Wittenberg and you want to look at the Lucas Chronic altarpiece at the town church in Wittenberg, uh, it's, it's going to be small. It's going to be about the size of uh, uh, maybe a quarter. But you'll find that uh, wild boar running through the vineyard. Okay, okay. So, so who was on this consistory? So the consistory was about forty cardinals working with papal lawyers and theologians. Uh, because Exerge Domine went through a consistory uh, that was subsequently signed by the Pope, it is to be considered an infallible utterance from the Pope. Okay, okay. So because the consistory was made up of a portion of the College of Cardinals. Right, the, that that makes it uh, that makes it really an official proclamation. Okay, I understand. I, so, I'm, I'm still sorting my head around what that means, but it's it's got the weight of the magisterium. I mean, the magisterium, the, the teaching authority of the church, the princes of the church, which is what a cardinal is, um, along with uh, the pope and, saying, and theologians and lawyers and everybody else gets together and they all stand together and they they put this paper out and it's and the pope signs it, so it's infallible. Which gets into conflict we're going to talk about with Vatican II and some of the statements that come up from that one. Yeah. But before we get there, uh, there was actually two consistories that were formed. The first one quickly put together a list of Luther's errors. The Curia then, uh, the Curia is just a, the household of bureaucrats in Rome, decided that Luther's teaching deserved a more thorough analysis. So they reorganized the consistory. To get more scholars on there? And, and uh, to sort of make sure that this is a, they wanted to do, so, they wanted to do the right at this point they wanted to do it right and they they wanted to have a and um, you can almost see the thumbprint of cardinal cajetan here where he wants to have a thorough scholarly analysis of luther's teachings and and really look at it point by point so the second consistory is taking on the task of identifying luther's teachings that should be considered heretical or erroneous and, and they don't want to, in this second consistory, just completely write off Luther as everything he says and touches and tastes and smells, anything related to Luther is bad. They really want to be specific. What is wrong? And so, but that gets where John Eck then tumbles into things and he says, you can't be so specific. It's just, he's bad. Well, and this is good. So what ends up happening is when, when you read through this, uh, and you read through Exerge Domine, Okay, the way it's structured is there's the, the preamble, which is the Arise, O Lord, and all that that we already talked about. The Pope himself wrote that. And then you have this uh, a little bit of a discussion on, on things like, oh, you know, that Luther is aligning himself with the heretic John Huss, or the Bohemians, and, uh, and the Greeks. So, you know, basically, that sort of alludes to the idea that Luther is rejecting the power of the Pope. 
So, and then they have... And that's really the evidence of John Eck. Because at the debate in Leipzig, that was where Eck found his victory, is getting Luther to attack the authority of the Pope. Okay. And And, and that's why I think Eck comes into the... um, Consistory is saying, stop looking at each specific error of Luther, because here's the big one that ultimately just matters. So, Luther is changing the magisterium of the church. So there, there are 40, let's, let's just... 41 go, errors? 41 errors that are listed. And those errors are categorized as heretical, number one. Number two, false. Number three, scandalous. And number four, the least, the least critical, or the least damaging, is offensive to pious ears. But, unfortunately, they did it in Globo. And what that means is in Globo, they say, there, here are the four categories, uh, heretical, false, scandalous, offensive to pious ears. Here are the 41 errors. But we don't know which one of the 41 errors are heretical versus false versus scandalous or offensive to pious ears. They're just, they're all bad. It's just a hodgepodge. It's just a high 40. You can pick out any one and it could be one of those four. And, and so, so what ends up happening is you have this, this, this messy, it's a, it's a, it ends up being a messy assertion from the Pope. Yeah. So one of the examples of a heresy is mentioning the heresies of the Greeks and Bohemians, which would seem... That's probably the only clear point that it's called, where it calls Luther a heretic. Yeah. And, and the heresy of the Greeks that's being attached to Luther here is the preeminence of the Pope is in dispute for Luther. For, and it's also and, in, tr- in dispute... In the Eastern Orthodox the Church, Eastern the Orthodox. Pope is not preeminent. Yeah. And then the attach of the Bohemians is an allusion to John Huss. Um, and, and John Huss lifting up the people as they read the scriptures, the true, uh, uh, authority by God through whom interpretation of the scripture happens. Okay. So, so, so 41 errors. So now these 41 errors, uh, what, what are they accurate? Are the 41 errors actually teachings of Luther? Well, for instance, uh, error 32, a good work done very well is a venial sin. Luther did say a good work that is done is a sin if it's done in terms of securing your salvation. Any good work that you do for the purpose of securing your salvation is a sin. So so anytime you do a good work to benefit yourself rather than to benefit your neighbor, all of a sudden now you that good work has become a sin. So they take off any of that qualification about self-righteousness and just say Luther has said good works are venial sins. Okay, so it's a total mischaracterization of Luther's teachings. Yeah, and, and, and so so you have that. You have um, yeah. The, there was the one which we'll talk about uh, down the road. The thirty three, I think, uh, number thirty three. Yeah, that heretics be burned is against the will of the spirit. So Luther is advocating against burning people at the stake, and he's doing this from his view of the two kingdoms, and that. Luther is proposing that the authority of the church is through the law and the gospel. The authority of the state is through the sword. It is not the work of the church to kill people. And so, but the the Pope 
through Exerge Domine, says, I have every right to kill people. I have every right to burn people at the stake. That's, you know, so, so this is, this is in Exerge Domine, and these are sort of the things that, that you'll find as you, as you read through that. Or, um, 17, the treasures of the church from which the Pope grants indulgences are not the merits of Christ and of the saints. So Luther argues that the, uh, that the merits of Christ are good. The merits of the saints are unnecessary. But the way 17 is written, it says basically that there is... Can you read that again? So the treasures of the church from which the Pope grants indulgences are not the merits of Christ and of the saints. Um, and so this is identified as a, an error of Luther. Um, and where this is seen as an error in the document is because it says that the merits of Christ and of the saints. Those yeah. two things are put together as synonymous. And Luther would say there is only the merit of Christ. There's not the merit of Christ and of the saints. Well, and and, and be the way that's written, it's unclear because it also says, you know, from which the, the Pope grants indulgences. So, yes, Luther had a problem with the Pope granting indulgences. But the way that this is attached, it makes it sound like the merits of Christ are, are no effect. That's right. And, and so you have all these, these mischaracterizations. Some of them are flat out lies. They, when, when, as I was doing my study, uh, the, some of these items Luther hadn't yet even discussed yet in any of his writings. It's not until after 1520 that he comes out strongly again. And, and, but basically Eck was what uh, uh, we'll say it was Eck. I don't know. We, we, we assume it was Eck because nobody, Nobody has gone through the trouble of, well, I don't know that it exists where you can say who input, which, which one of these 41, but, yeah. uh, it, you know, it, it's somebody, <laughs> somebody on that council made up stuff that, you know, sort of said, okay, well, Luther is in this direction and eventually he's going to get here. So we're going to just throw that in there too. Well, and here's something that Luther is proposed to have said, that Christians must be taught to cherish excommunication rather than to fear them. Um, I don't think he never he never said anything like that. That's so as we talk about it, Sergei Dominate, one of the things that can be struggling about it is just there's no sourcing either. Where did Luther say this? And and where is the conversation with how this balances against scripture? I would love to have read this um with each thing that's identified as a, an error against Luther um and have it balanced with in contrast to Luther, here's what the scriptures say. They don't do any of that. They just they just come out and say, you know, this is where we stand, period, done. You know, you, you, you better recant because the church has spoken. So we have time now for a beer break. Uh, I think it's it's a good time for a beer break. Yeah, because otherwise I'm just getting more frustrated about it, Sergio <laughs> Dominic. Uh, so this is a different beer for us. Normally we'll try to feature Great Lakes beers. We've had some from Cleveland's. We uh, had one from Cleveland. The rest have been from Michigan. Yeah. Now, now... This one's not from the Great Lakes. No, no. This is one of... We have a, a lot of listeners in Japan. Uh, I, I track where our where our, our shows are downloaded... I don't, I don't know where in Japan. I have no idea, but we have a lot of listeners in Japan. So I went to the store and I bought a Japanese uh, craft brew. Uh, and just as a thank you for our, our listeners in Japan, this is from Kiyuchi Brewery, uh, which is just a little bit north of Tokyo. It's a little northwest of Tokyo. 
Kiyuchi Kayuchi, Kayuchi? I, I hope I'm saying that right. It was established in 1823, uh, and it was known. It's it's known in Japan primarily, or has historically been known, going back to 1823, for making sake. And then, and I believe it was the 1900, 1996, 1996, they started brewing beer. And so, and they have this, the, the, the brand that they've created for, for, uh, for their beer is the hit, uh, uh, Hitachino Nest? Hitachino Nest beer? It has an all character logo. And over the years, it's gained uh, in Japan and worldwide attention by winning awards at numerous world beer competitions. In 2000, brew on-premise facilities open to enjoy brewing original ale to the public. Uh, so Shochi Kuichi Kuichi built a distillation distillation facility in March 2003 to aid with recycling and reduction of waste. And uh, they started with the Shochi Kuichi distilled liquor. Um, okay, so they're making all sorts of stuff there. So the this is uh it's the and from their website in 2004 2000 liters of wine and the Hitachino Nest is famous for its sophisticated well balanced beer brew based on a substantial backbone of their family legacy. So the beer we have now um is is when we opened it I thought of it maybe like a honey flavor to it. Yeah, it's I it's got a, a it's got an interesting it's a Weizen beer. It's a, it's, but it's, it's not as, it, it's got more of a bite to it than most bites. It's more sweet than most bites and beers yeah. are. But I, I like it. Like I, like I said in the last episode though, I'm, I like beer. So oh. this is, this is a good one. Um, describing as a German style Hefeweizen with banana, clove, and vanilla like flavors with a touch of toasty wheat, malt, and You know, that's, hops. that's, I, it's not what I'm tasting. No, I, 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 I taste the banana. I taste the banana and the clove. I wonder if the banana is what I'm thinking is the honey, that fruit. That's, you know, I didn't hit me until I, that's yeah. exactly what this is. This is, this is banana and clove. Banana it's, and cloves. There we go. Now I'm, I'm, right. now, now you're getting on board. Well, maybe not. I, I don't think <laughs> I'm closer. I'm closer. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually liking this one. It's not a session ale for me. So uh, I'm, I'm really it's enjoying a specialty it. thing. Now, when I'm, uh, I sometimes, uh, for business find myself in Japan and I'm really going to have to see if I can find my way to this, uh, this, this brewery. Uh, I'm, I'm very interested in, they have something out there called the Neponia beer and, and the Neponia beer is made from these, they, they, they went to the, uh, at the Department of Agricultural History in Japan. Uh, the brewery went to the Department of Agricultural History in Japan, and they uh, they got 16 seeds of this barley strain from 180 years ago. Yeah, and then they 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 started to grow this stuff. Five years it took a great effort to do it, and they succeeded in reviving a long lost Japanese brewing staple of barley from 180 years ago. So this Noponia is kind of like a what was that movie with the dinosaurs lost in the a Jurassic Park? It's a Jurassic Park beer. <laughs> so I really want to try this Neponia. You know, it's uh, I actually went looking for it, and I couldn't find it. I, all I all I could find at the local. So when you're, I actually had to hunt. I went usually here in Michigan. You can find a lot of craft beer at any grocery store and all. But I wanted to find a Japanese craft beer. So I didn't where did want, you find it? it? It was at the Canopy. 
Okay. So, I, 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 but I went all over the place looking for this beer. And this was the, I didn't want Asahi. I didn't want Asahi Extra Dry. I didn't want any of those. Those would be easy to get, but I wanted something that was a little bit unusual. And uh, I, 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 I'm not disappointed. I'm really enjoying this one. So, uh, the little, the, a, a drink to our, our Japanese listeners. Well, let's get back to it. So the second consistory that had formed was going to issue a report that said only a few of Luther's teachings could possibly be considered heretical or erroneous. But the final bull is pretty threatened. Near the end, the bull states, therefore we can, without any further citation or delay, without further citation, what citation did they do anyways? All right. (laughs) Without any further citation or delay, proceed against him to his condemnation and damnation as one whose faith is notoriously suspect and, in fact, a true heretic with the full severity of each and all of the above penalties and censures. And then it goes on. It says, yet we have decided. Now, this is where, you know, this is, you know, where they're, they're sort of nice. They say, yeah, we have decided to use all the compassion we are capable of. It is our hope, so far as in lies in us, uh, that he will experience a change of heart by taking the road of mildness we have proposed. Return and turn away from his errors. We will receive him kindly as the prodigal son returning to the embrace of the church. So basically... I do like that. I mean, anytime the church would describe someone in error, I would hope that the ultimate goal is return. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But it's sort of... You know, but we're not going to kill you, but it would be all right if we did. So really, we hope you change your mind. Otherwise, we're okay killing you. Yeah, we can, we can kill you if we want to, but we might not. Because you, maybe you'll change your mind. Yeah. So <laughs> hopefully when, when a modern church reaches out to somebody who's gone on, they, they'll say, you know, yes, we'll be like the prodigal son and they won't threaten to kill them in the process. But that's so. So, so rather than attaching specific errors as heretical or erroneous, instead, they're going to be vaguely threatening, which makes it um, hard for Luther because anything that he's being attacked is really a moving target. Yeah. Yeah. So, so here we are, you know, the, the John Eck and Cardinal Cajetan were on this committee that were involved in drafting up the, uh, the, the most important part of, of that, those 41 errors. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they, they really had to answer two questions. First, should Luther and his teachings be condemned? And then the second is, okay, yeah, if they're going to be condemned, how should we go about doing it? So the theologians, they want to completely demolish Luther, to renounce Luther. There's several people on the committee who said that there should be no papable at that time. Uh, they argued that Luther was too popular you know, and I, that this would just split the church. Well, yeah, I wonder. It, my readings, it, uh, it was unclear what they're, you know, if they were saying, I wonder if they were saying, you know, this might split the church. This, because... They you ha- already had Mil- Miltitz. Miltitz came- had gone through, and he described on his way up to uh, see Luther, he couldn't find anyone on the side of the Pope, in, no matter how many pubs he stopped in. He couldn't find the majority. Certainly, yes. out of five people, he'd have two who supported the Pope, maybe. Yeah. So it was. So Miltitz was coming back. Miltitz said, "You know, things are. You know, he, Luther has a lot of support up there in Germany." My thinking, and the, you know, it'd be interesting. I, I obviously don't didn't didn't go through the the source documentation, and I wasn't able to find this clearly said. But I would assume that Eck that there was this component that were saying, "Hey, this is really serious. Luther's too popular. We shouldn't do a papal bull right now." And Eck coming back, and Eck coming from Germany, saying, 
Now is the time. We have to do the Papal Bowl right now. Because otherwise it'll be too late. Otherwise it'll be too late. And where Eck actually, where there was this this component of the group who were seeking to sort of have a more slow progress, Eck pushed everything forward and ramrodded everything through. And, and he now, had in the between authority. these guys is the canon lawyers. Yeah. So if if Cajetan is like, let's have a scholarly uh, dispute, and Eck is like, we need to burn him right now, the canon lawyers, they're in the middle, and they thought that Luther should be given a hearing and a chance to defend himself. The final version is a compromise between the canon lawyers and the theologians. So, Luther would be given no so, hearing. So that, that, let's just make one thing clear. That, that third group... Who said the let's, canon lawyers? No, no. The the group who said let's not put anything out there. Let's not put out a papal bull. They're not even part of the negotiations now. They've been pushed out. Yeah, they they have been left out of the room. And and now you got the let's kill them and let's have a hearing. Those are the two groups that are in the room. So the the yeah the 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 middle ground is between those two groups. And so finally they settle on sixty days. Um, the final version was a compromise between the canon lawyers and the theologians. Luther would be given no hearing, but he would be given 60 days to recant his position. Now, the identity of the 60 days has been, um, is it 60 days from when Luther receives it or from when it's published? Uh, It's kind of seen from when Luther receives it. Okay. And he receives it in October and he burns it on the 60th day in December um, as like, it means nothing. Yeah. And I think it depends. Luther looked at it as the 60 days started when he received a copy. I Eck, think the, the it was I, different. Uh, yeah, I think John X said the sixty days begins from the first day that it got nailed up to the church doors at one of the major churches. Somewhere. Yeah, yeah. So, so there was a little variation there. Luther says that the final day is, I think, December tenth, and X says the final day is like November twenty seventh or something like that. So, the Pope assigns to John Eck and Girolamo Alandro the task of publishing this bull. Uh, Alandro goes first to the Netherlands, uh, which is the seat of the Holy Roman Empire. That's where Charles V has his headquarters. Oh, okay. And uh, Alandro's going there um, because there's nervousness that if the growing Reformation spreads from Germany to the Netherlands, it's a little bit more of a global problem. So... He goes first to the Netherlands, and Eck goes elsewhere. And as Eck goes places, he, interestingly, something I found out, Mike, is he had been given permission to the Pope to add names. By the Pope. Yeah, he had been given permission by the Pope, but somewhat secretly, to add names. So if along the way he heard someone kind of sympathetic, he could label them as a heretic along with Luther. <laughs> okay. And and so Eck and... Alejandro, right about times when they uh, the opposition was so fierce to them that their very lives are endangered. When he was in Leipzig, Eck had to retreat for an hour to a cloister until the mob left because they were so mad at Eck for publishing the Pope Bowl in Leipzig. You know, what's interesting about that is... With Leipzig, like we talked about with the... That was Duke George of Saxony, who was pro-pope. Yeah, Duke George was pro-pope. And then you also had all the concerns about the Hussites, the the Bohemians. It was almost as if 
the papal bull was specifically written to appeal to these people. And it should have been their wheelhouse, and even them, they're against uh, publishing it in their lands. You know, and, and it's it's just... That's that, one of the reasons, you know, we were talking about publishing in June, and Luther doesn't get it to October. Yeah. This is why it took so long. Uh, it's because Eck and Alejandro are traveling through Germany and the Netherlands, and they're trying to publish it in a place... Um, make sure it's supported in that place and then move to the next place. And it's making them, uh, they're not going to Wittenberg first. They're going and trying to gain their support around Germany and then finishing and arriving in Wittenberg and handing it to them there. So one of the things that I, I read, and I actually didn't capture it in the notes here, was that the Pope, you know, between between Eck and Alejandro and, and all, all the other forces of the Pope, everybody uh, from the papal side is trying to push for the burning of Luther's documents as they're going through. They want all get gather up all of Luther's works and burn them all. And they're finding huge, huge resistance every city they go to. Well, what a thing of the press and the, the power of the printed word that, first of all, there would be in all these cities the writings of Luther. Yeah. Just think about what that says about the popularity of Luther, that every city they arrive in, there is this big pile. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like I've written a lot of newsletter articles. Um, I've written some blog articles. But I'm pretty sure you go outside of Hamburg, there's not too many cities where you can find my writings. Maybe in Brighton. Maybe in Brighton. <laughs> Bake the big stretch. But uh, Luther is... His writings are everywhere. If anything should tell you how popular Luther is, Eck is supposed to burn Luther's writings, and there are these huge piles. Well, and they, but the problem is, is they can't get these piles built. Now, Luther Eck is finding, he comes into the town, he says, okay, gather everything together, let's burn all Luther's writings, and there's a little, little tiny pile. Because they don't want to bring them out. Yeah, they don't want to bring them out. And so there's this little tiny pile of a couple of pamphlets and stuff. But it's not because there's no documents in those cities, it's because they don't want to bring them. Yes, right. That's right. And what ended up happening was, people would, <laughs> people would bring out papal, the, the canon law, they'd bring out, they'd bring out Roman stuff and, and say, okay, yeah, this is from Luther, and they'd burn that. And so there was all this stuff going on, where Eck was just finding resistance. So competing fires, the canon law well, or Luther's. Well, they writings. would actually, no, they would actually, in the in the fire that was supposed to be for Luther, they would throw the canon law in there. Oh, so, you know, you could look in there and go, hey, wait a minute, that's not what Luther wrote, that's what I wrote. That's not supposed to be in there. <laughs> What would happen? And so it was, you know, they, but they were, you know, they were sort of, you know, it, it was, it was extremely difficult for Eck to, to, to complete his, his assignment of getting Luther, getting all of his books pulled together, getting them burned and getting him tagged as a heretic. It was very, very difficult in his travels through Germany. So on December 10th in 1520, 60 days after Luther had received a copy of this bull, he and Philip Melanchthon invited the local university faculty and students to assemble at the Elster Gate in Wittenberg. Okay. And they had a bonfire. And they did not put Luther's writings in that bonfire. No, no. Now, that, that particular bonfire originally was supposed to be just the canon law, which was the critical document. This is symbolic of... of the authority of the Pope uh, to burn him as a heretic. Yes. So they're, ta they're saying, we are going to burn all the... Everything that declares papal power. So they burn the papal power, but they also burn papal constitutions. And then the key one, 
is the works of scholastic theologians. Okay. And then finally, Luther took his copy of the bull and put it in the flames. Now, you know, one thing that we skipped over, and I want to go back to this, mm-hmm. just before that, that bonfire, just outside of Wittenberg, uh, on December the 10th, where, where the canon law was burned and the papal bull was burned, in November, Luther wrote a defense where he went through the papal bull. Yeah, during the 60 days from receiving the papal bull to burning, it's not like he ignored it. Yeah. So he went through and he has, he goes through and, and enumerates each point and where he stands on it. So, so that document's called Assertions of All the Articles Wrongly Condemned in the Roman Bull. Now, this is not exactly a conciliatory, uh, this isn't a, a, a this isn't a, a, a you know, uh, what's the term like a, where, uh, uh, you know, we're going to try and get together. We're going to try and It's make... not a reconciling document. No, this is not a reconciling document. Thank you. So he says, uh, I'm going to just read a couple of things here that Luther wrote. He said, therefore, he goes, uh, therefore, I have said and still say that the Pope's indulgences are nothing but lies and deceit. So he's not turning around on that one? No, no, no. no. Okay. And then another point he says, uh, I was wrong. I admit it. When well, I he's s- going to admit something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's I, find out what he admits. He goes, I, I admit it. When I said that indulgences were the pious defrauding of the faithful, I recant and say indulgences are the most pious frauds and impostors of the most rascally pontiffs by which they deceive the souls and destroy the goods of the faithful. So not exactly, you know, working to to bridge the gap between <laughs> between Rome and, and Luther. So, um, Catholic view of all of this is most Catholic scholars consider Exerge Domine to be a strange document. Quote, strange. Yeah. Catholic scholar John M. Todd calls it contradictory, lacking in clarity, and incident- incidentally far less effective than it might have been. So, uh, it was actually Todd's scholarship that points out that Cardinal Cajetan was disgusted with X bulldozing of the final and miserably, and quote, uh, air quotes here, uh, miserably incompetent version through the committee. Even John Eck later said that the bull was hopelessly inadequate. Independent of Lutherans, uh, Catholic theological discussion on exerge domine continues because Article 3 advocated for the... Bir- yeah. Article 33. Article 33 in the bull advocates for the burning of heretics at the stake. They said that Luther was in error when he said the church does not have the authority to burn heretics. So um, that's a little bit problematic for the modern church because this is supposed to be an infallible document. And what the, the problem is, is that... An so we're going to talk a little bit about infallibility then right now. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, this is getting into the... I went to the, the papal... I went to the Vatican website. And so we're not making this up. This is the Vatican website. This is the Vatican website. And I'm trying to understand the role, how they look at infallibility. Because one of the things... I think Protestants often get it wrong. Yeah. Protestants I, make it sound like, well, if the Pope says the sky is gray and it's a blue sky outside, then we have to believe the Pope. No, that's not what this is about. No, no. Papal infallibility... That was a bad example, by the way. I mean, the sky is often gray. <laughs> we'll let it go. You've had too much... Japanese beer. So the the um the basically pa- papal infallibility is is only first of all it's only has to do with uh, uh, issues of faith and morals, and and then it's the, I'm going to just read from the Vatican website. Um, let's see here. 
where where was that? So the Ro- Roman pontiff, head of the College of Bishops, enjoys this infallibi- infallibility in virtue of his office when, as supreme pastor and teacher of all the faithful, who confirms his brethren in the faith, he proclaims by a definitive act. And this is important. He procl- this is this is where he's speaking infallibly. Okay, he proclaims by a definitive act a doctrine pertaining to faith or morals. So it's it's contained to faith and morals. Okay, number one. The infallibility promised to the church is also present in the body of the bishops. So the bishops have to be involved. Together, when? Together with Peter's successor, they exercise the supreme magisterium above all in an ecumenical council. And the word magisterium means teacher. And magister is a teacher in Latin. Magisterium is the teaching authority of the church. And so in the, in the Roman Catholic Church, when they say magisterium, they're talking about the cardinals, I think the bishops and the, cardinals, but it's at least the cardinals. And the it's College the teaching authority of the church to say, this is what faith and morals mean. Okay. So then, so it's, it's when the Pope and the magister, at least my understanding reading through this mm-hmm. is when the Pope and the cardinals or the magisterium, Together, talk about something with faith and morals, and then it's uh, then they they are they are in the realm of when they make a what was the term a definitive act of doctrine. So they it's those are the three things. It's a definitive act of doctrine with the Pope and the and the Magisterium all coming together on the subject of faith and morals. That's my understanding and of the, all this. The idea of the infallibility of the Pope doesn't get confirmed as doctrine, I think, by the Council of the Church, so Vatican I, in the 19th century. That's true. That's true. And so even during Luther's time, they didn't talk about the Pope as, as a confirmed infallible thing, right? That's, that's true. So it's and just to, I think it was in the 1870s, Vatican I, is when basically the Pope... The history of that one, and you know, I'm I'm not a I'm not a papal. We're this, moving past our notes, folks. We're by moving the way. past our notes, but this is from my memory. Um, the uh, the basically what happened was the Pope was under attack, and the 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 sort of the church rallied around him, and in this process of rallying around the Pope, they decided that oh well, we're going to make you infallible. We'll make the and it's going to be with these certain rules. And so the, the but they were talking about the office of the pope as the supreme teacher and, and pastor of the church. Well, the, so. the the pope actually acted infallible, mm-hmm. you know, going back to Luther's time and pro- prior to that. Uh I'm going to say in the you know prior to the the great schism with the Eastern Church, uh Pope Leo, uh, I forget the number. Well, uh, when we talk about the treatise on the power and primacy of the pope or, or maybe we can bring this up why are we talking about this struggle with infallibility in relationship to this document, Exerge Domine, and Article 33 saying that it's okay for the Pope to burn heretics is because Vatican II states, quote, the human person has a right to religious freedom. Vatican II then goes on to say, this freedom means that all men are to be immune from coercion on the part of individuals or of social groups and of any human power in such ways that no one is to be forced to act in a manner contrary to his own beliefs, whether privately or publicly, whether alone or in association with others, within due limits. So now, now, so obviously there is the, you know, exerge domine saying, okay, it's okay to burn people at the stake. 
And Vatican II saying... Everyone has liberty and freedom to think what they think. Yeah. The, the, those, those two are on a, they're on a collision course, and they're both infallible documents. Now, the, the, the thing is, and I, 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 you know, we want to be respectful to the Catholic theologians here, and I don't want to... So, so this, is, this is a discussion amongst Catholic scholars, and I think what their Catholic theology has worked through these kinds of issues in the past, and what they do is they come up with very fine distinctions where Lutheran theology tends to, we tend to be more clear. What the, what the, the Catholic theology will do is they'll come up with very fine distinctions to say that, oh, well, you know, exerge Domine, because it did everything in globo, right? We can say that this particular line, line number 33, was not part of heresy. It was a, it was a problem for scandalous ears. Okay. Right. So, so now it, it, we'll just, we'll, we'll categorize it as that. So it's a lower level and it's not, you know, the, what, what is preeminent is what was said at Vatican II. So there's, there's, you know, they can work through that, but they have to sort of define, you know, what is, what does it mean when we say infallible? So it is December of 1520 and Luther has received Exerge Domine. He's had his 60 days and he has burned the papal bull. Quoting Catholic scholar John Todd in What This Papal Bull Means, he goes on to say there was an indifference to truth, whether factual or theological, in Exerge Domine. So we'll be taking a look at Luther's open letter to the Christian nobility, which was written concurrently to Exerge Domine during our next episode. And And the open letter to the Christian nobility where the Exerge Domine is the Pope taking a swipe at Luther. The open letter to Christian nobility is Luther taking a swipe at the Pope. So I think that does it. Let's uh, sign off by saying thank you to Josh Yeagley. Thank you to St. Paul Lutheran Church. A recognition of our source materials is helpful today as well, uh, because there wasn't a lot in Luther's works uh, with Exerge Domine. There's uh, more in Wikipedia, I suppose. (laughs) And also John Todd, uh, who wrote Martin Luther, A Biographical Study, which is an interesting book because it's written by a Catholic scholar. Yeah, uh, Hans Hildebrand, who's, uh, he had several documents uh, we referenced for this one. Uh, He is a, I believe, a Presbyterian scholar. Oh, okay. And uh, then papalencyclicals.net, a catholic.com. Now, catholic.com is an interesting one. That's a Catholic website set up to defend Catholic faith against Protestants like us, you know. And, uh, but it was a great place to, for me. Uh, I went through and I looked at that and I wanted to make sure that I wasn't mischaracterizing any Catholic teachings. So, so that was, that was very helpful to get the, the, you know, at least these, we'll call it Catholic apologists who were very clear about where they stood. So that was good. And uh, you can look to Vatican for a copy of Exerge Domine. We will also have links to it on our website attached to this episode. Uh, you can contact us at graceontap.podcast at gmail.com. Or Grace on Ta- you can check us out at our website, graceontap-podcast.com. Or, or catch us on Facebook um, at facebook.com slash graceontap.podcast. We'd appreciate any reviews you can post on iTunes. It helps to get the word out and raise the... Uh, search capability of uh, Grace on Tap as a podcast people will want to listen to. Cheers. Cheers.